This is a sight that my wife wishes she saw more of. Me with a vacuum cleaner in my hand. I do vacuum. I do plenty of things. But this is one of my least favorite chores because in a house with five children and two dogs, it almost feels like uh, you're defeated just as soon as you're finished. I like the nice lines in the carpet when it's done and you can see. But the lines become smudges and smears within minutes of doing this chore in our house. Everyone who has ever vacuumed their home or their business or their office knows that this is a vacuum cleaner. They have a general concept and a basic understanding of how this works from the motor that is inside to the brushes that rotate and turn to pick up the things and bring it through a vacuum system into a bag, which who knew you're actually supposed to change those from time to time. You can tell when they get full a lot of times because of how thick they are or when it starts kicking out dust into the air. This is a vacuum cleaner. And in order for this to work, it requires a lot of things. But based on what I've described to you so far, what's missing? Power. Power. Every one of us knows that in order for this to work and to work effectively, it needs a power source and it needs to be plugged into that power source. Otherwise, it's rendered useless. It looks the part, it feels the part, but without being plugged into the power source, it is utterly useless. It's powerless. And I wonder how many of us, if we're really, if we're really honest about our Christian walks, this is how we feel sometimes. This is how we feel sometimes too often. Sure, we go through the motions. We know the way that we are supposed to look. We understand at least in principle or in part how it's supposed to function. But we remain completely disconnected from the one who is our source, from the one who is our power. In the same way that we would look at anybody trying to vacuum trying to clean up or pick up an area of their living quarters or their working quarters, we would look at them having no power to this vacuum cleaner. We would think that it was, it was pointless, it was crazy, that it was defeating the purpose. I wonder how many of us feel not too dissimilar to this, where in our spiritual lives, in our walk with Jesus, we feel like we're going through the proverbial motions, but we're missing that power. And how silly do we feel? How silly do we actually look? Well, that's exactly what we're going to address today as we are in week seven of our I Am series. One of three parts that we've been studying through the gospel of John, where we're looking at the person, the purpose, and the passions of Jesus in our I Am Series, we've been learning from Jesus' own words, these letters in red, how Jesus describes and defines himself, teachings about the person, the purpose, and the passions of Jesus. And today we are going to learn from Jesus' own words that he is our very source of power. And that we were, when we remain connected to him as our source, amazing things happen. But when we disconnect from Jesus as our source of life, as our power, it's incredibly dangerous, even deadly. I'd encourage you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of John, the gospel of John in the New Testament. 
If you don't have a Bible, I have friends in the worship center here at our Blair campus that are coming around with Bibles. Simply raise your hand and let them know you'd like a Bible. It's a gift. It's from us here at Reach Church to you. It's yours to have and to keep. For those of you joining online, this would be a great time for you to go and grab your Bible and turn to John chapter 15, where we're going to spend a majority of our time together today. John 15 verses 1 through 12, as we study this gospel message together today, where Jesus defines, describes, declares, I am the vine. Father, I thank you for this time that we have set aside to come together as a body of believers to worship your name, to worship your name through music, lifting up our voices, to worship your name through relationships, to worship your name through encouraging one another to worship your name through giving of ourselves, our time and our treasure and our talents, and to worship your name by learning. As we continue to worship, as your word goes out, I pray that it would not return void, but I pray that it would become active and that it would become alive in us and through us. I pray as we jump into, into our time together today, learning all the more what it means, what you mean, when you say that you are the vine and we are the branches, that, Father, you will illuminate our minds and you will stir our affections, that you will create an even greater longing in us for you. And I pray now that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of our hearts would be seen as holy and pleasing to you alone, Lord. And it's in your name we pray and we commit our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus has just finished the Passover meal with his disciples. They've been tucked away in an upper room, seemingly hidden out of sight from the rest of the busy community. Jesus has this fantastic and amazing and strong conversation with the disciples in what's known as the upper room discourse. John chapter 14, Jesus is going to give some lows, some things that the disciples are about to experience. He tells them he's going to die. He tells Judas that he's going to betray him. In fact, he encourages him to go ahead and do what he's gone already to do in his heart. He's going to tell Peter that he's going to disown him, not once, not twice, but three times before the day is over, the next day. Jesus has this amazing conversation, but he encourages them in the middle of all these things that they're concerned about, not to lose heart, not to be troubled, not to be burdened. Because Jesus says, I'm going to go to a place and I'm going to prepare a place for you so that we can be together eternally. That there are greater things to come. That there are more things that are of value and importance that you should fix your eyes on than just what we see and have here. And I made the statement. I said, for Christians, this world as we know it is as bad as it will ever be. For non-Christians, this world as we know it is as good as it will ever get. And I don't know about you, but if I had to choose, my hope is that this world is as bad as it will ever be for me. And I'm gonna look on longingly for that place and that space and that time of eternity where we will not experience any of the death and the devastation that we experience this side of heaven. But here's the catch. We can begin to experience and know and realize heaven here and now. In fact, we were created for that, and that's why Jesus came. And today, as we pick up, we see Jesus leaving the upper room with his disciples, and he's actually gonna go for a walk. 
He's going to go for a, a walk with his disciples. It's a private walk. I don't know how many of you do this, but one of the things that I like to do, one of two things really that I like to do when I need to clear my head is I like to go for a walk or I like to ride my bike or go for a, a car ride just, just on my own. I like to go and just clear my head. Or if Stacy and I need time alone to have a conversation, just something as simple as conversing with my wife, we have to leave the house to talk. We find that grocery shopping are where some of our greatest conversations are accomplished. I'll go for a walk and I'll have this conversation with Stacy and we process things that are really important. And it's in these private moments that we're refining one another and that we're growing collectively together. Jesus is leaving the upper room and he's on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane where he will pray the most intense, passion-filled, purpose-filled prayer. He will pray, he will pray, and he will pray. But uh, on his way, he has this amazing conversation that is reserved for followers of Jesus, that are reserved for his disciples. At this point, there's now 11 of them as Judas Iscariot has gone off and is beginning the process of betraying Jesus. And we pick up in this walk with Jesus We pick up in this walk with Jesus and his disciples in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. I encourage you to follow along with me in your Bible. Jesus says, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. This statement, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener, is packed. It is loaded with so many things that we could extrapolate on. We could squeeze this verse over and over and over again and learn so many things. But I want to share with you just a few of the things that we see going on here. Number one, Jesus, as we've been talking about throughout this series, when he says, I am, it is a direct correlation to the person of God, the Father, the Creator. And he is in effect saying, I am God. We see that take place in Exodus chapter 3. Moses, the burning bush. Moses, who should I say sent me? God says, I am that I am. So when Jesus makes this definitive I am statement, he is not just suggesting, he is declaring that he is in fact God. He says, I am the true. Now that word true, we look at it and we assume that it means different from a lie. But what Jesus literally means in the original language is that it is authentic, that it is genuine, that every part of it is complete. There's nothing about it that's missing. When Jesus says, I am the true grapevine, he says, you can trust that I am authentic, that I am entire, that I am complete, that there is nothing missing in me. Then he goes on to say, I am the true grapevine. Now, now doesn't that seem just a little strange that the disciples are walking with Jesus and he uses this This illustration to tell them who he is. For us, unless you've grown up in California or other parts of the country where vineyards are prominent, it may not mean a lot to us. But for the disciples, there are possibly four things that are going on as Jesus gives this declaration. Perhaps they're walking by a vineyard. We don't know, but there's four connotations here that we need to pay attention to. Number one. Vineyards were a national symbol. They're a national symbol. You would see them on a coin. You would see them on money. It was 
a declaration for the community that it was rich and that it was blessed. So it was, it was financial. It was a part of the government. The second thing is that vineyards and, and grapevines were religious. Perhaps Jesus and the disciples are walking past the temple at this time and at this moment on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is just off in the distance, and they pass one of the brilliant golden doorways into the temple that is covered with vineyards, that is covered with grapevines. It's a religious symbol that means that you are full, that you are rich, and that you are connected to a greater power. And it wasn't just unique to Judaism. There were other religions that used this symbol to represent this connection to a greater power. Vineyards and grapevines were also agriculture, agricultural. People, they recognized what this meant for them, how they grew, what it meant for the gardener to care for the vines and all that goes with that, which we'll get into here momentarily. But the fourth thing, and I believe that this is prophecy fulfilling, is it's historical. Vineyards and grapevines were historical. I want to encourage you to write this down and go back and study this. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. That's one Old Testament example of many where God refers to the Israelite people as a vineyard. And always, not almost always, always when God is referring to the Israelites as a vineyard, he refers to them as failed vines, failing to produce fruit, failing to be life-giving, failing to be sustainable. And the Israelites minds and in their lives is what we have come to know as the cycle of sin where they will be walking with God they will be bearing fruit but then something comes along that will rob their affections away from God and into an idol typically it's a false idol and from there the people will will fall they'll sin and from the sin they'll cry out in agony because God can have no part in sin and they would feel separate from God. And they would longingly look toward God with great affections, wanting desperately to have that connection again. And so they would repent, which means that they would confess their sins, but not only confess their sins, they would physically, literally walk away from that idol, that sin, that thing that drew their affections away from God and that, that pulled them to sin. And God would reinstate them. And once again, they would be realigned. And yet, it is called the cycle of sin because it's something that took place cyclically. So we see historically in the Old Testament, as God refers to the Israelites as a vineyard, as vines, that it is always in a negative connotation because they are ceasing or failing to, to bear fruit. But Jesus... Jesus makes this claim. He makes this statement. He says, I am the true, authentic, entire, complete vineyard. I am the grapevine. I am the true grapevine. What is Jesus saying to the disciples in this moment that we need to catch hold of? Jesus is saying in this moment that I, the one who has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, I will do, I am doing what you could never do. Where you fall short 
as a nation, where you fall short as a person, where you fall short as a people, I am authentic, entire, and complete, and I am able to do what you could never do. I am the grapevine, the true grapevine, the authentic grapevine. This would have caused alarm in the disciples, this claim of Jesus that he is the true grapevine. It bears so much weight and significance, and it carries the remainder of our conversation today. He doesn't stop there. He says, my father, my father is the gardener. Now, I'm not a green thumb. I don't have much to do with, with landscaping or, or have any gardens. I have no interest. I, I actually prefer to make friends with people who have really nice gardens and will gift us their watermelon and their fruit and their vegetables. It's just, it, it just works out better that way for everyone. But what I know to be true of gardeners, I've got a, a neighbor across the street who has an amazing garden. My little girls, they love, MJ and Brian, my, my five-year-old and my eight-year-old, love to go over to his house, to his, his garden, and they, they go out there and they walk with him as he's planting. They walk with him as, he's, as, as, he's re, you know, as, as, as the, the fruit and the vegetables are coming up and as they harvest. They love to be a part of the process. They're learning so much from him, things that they'd never learned from me. I grew up in the concrete jungle. The only thing that grew was the weeds in between the cracks and the concrete. They look at these things and my daughters get so excited about this and they look and they see how Roy will care for the, the garden. He'll pull any weeds that would look to take away or, or, or choke out the good fruit and the good vegetables. He looks to see how he pull, they look to see how he pulls the, the vines up off the ground so that they don't get moldy, so they don't get soggy and wet. They, they look to see how any plant that is bending one side or another, he'll put stakes in the ground and he will tie them off so that they can grow in the position that they were intended to grow. They watch as he intentionally cares for this garden by putting a chicken wire fence all the way around it so that no one or no thing can get in there to harm his garden. So when Jesus says, I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener, he is telling the disciples, in effect, I'm going to do what you cannot do. As a nation, as an individual, you can never do it. I have not only been created to do this, I will do it, and it will be done once and for all, for all. And my father, my father's the gardener. What that means is we can look at the father, we can look at God, we can look at Yahweh and see that he is preparing the soil for us. He is planting us in the right season, in the right place, and at the right time. He is watching out for us. He is preparing us for the harvest. God is at work in our lives. Jesus goes on to say in verse 2, He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. This is one of those verses where you wish as a pastor it didn't say what it says because if you go to the original language, there's no way around it. I would love to extrapolate on this and tell you that it's just an allegory, but I can't because that's not what's happening. Jesus is having an intentional conversation with who? The disciples, the people that have followed him collectively for three years. This is not a mass conversation to anybody who has ears to hear. He's having an intentional conversation with his disciples that follow him. So when we read this here, Jesus says, he, the gardener, God, cuts off every branch of mine. What does it mean of mine? 
It means in order to have been his, you have, or to be cut off, you have to have first be tied to. You have to first be tied to. There is going to be clear-cut evidence and demonstrations of what is known as free will, where we not only have the ability to choose, but we have a responsibility to remain in or to continue with. I was talking to some friends of mine this last week, and I think one of the things that pastors preaching in churches are lacking We joke about it, we laugh about it, but it's what we call hellfire and brimstone preaching. And don't worry, this isn't one of those messages. I have no desire to create a church or a platform where we're going to preach hellfire and brimstone and scare anybody into the kingdom of God. That's not my goal, that's not my intention, and I don't see that that's ever how God approaches things. At the same time, I would be ignorant and irresponsible if I pretended that God does not give a stern warning about people who choose to disconnect from the source of power and the ramifications of that disconnect. I owe it to you to rightly divide God's word. Not asserting my own ideas, but telling you what it says. And here, as I understand it in the original language, Jesus is telling the disciples, the 11 that are closest to him, hey, listen, God, as the gardener, cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. Why is that? Why is that? It's called deadheading. Again, I don't have a a green thumb. I I dated a girl once whose family owned a rhododendron farm. I think that's what it is. I don't know. They had a lot of rhododendrons, and they they made them, and they sold them. I don't know that they made them. They planted them, harvested them, and sold them. Andrew, shut up. (laughs) I dated a girl whose family sold rhododendrons. And periodically, I'd go to her family's house with her, and we would get up in the morning and the chores, rather than milking the cows or feeding the animals, was to go outside and take your thumb and go around to the flowers of the rhododendron. And the ones that looked like they were dying, we were to pinch them and pop them off. I, that was just a blast. I had a ton of fun with that. Sometimes I got a little overzealous and popped up the whole thing. The reason that you deadhead is because if you have a branch or a fruit that is not producing, that is actually dying or dead, what it is doing, it is still drawing nutrients, it is still drawing life from other parts of the plant that need it, that will benefit from it, that have value add. And the gardener is responsible, not malicious, but responsible to go along and to prune And we're going to hold on to that word. We're going to talk about that word for just a moment. To prune the trees so that they can be even more productive. Jesus says, my father, the gardener, cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And he prunes. Circle or highlight that word prune. I want to talk about that for just a moment. He prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. That word in the original language, it doesn't mean to cut off. It literally means to clean or to purify. In our vernacular today, I want to teach you a word if you don't know it. It should be a common word, but the word is sanctification. It's a progressive sanctification. And sanctification is the process of becoming clean or pure or holy or more like. In this case, more like God. It's becoming a a, a better version, a stronger version, a a more accurate version of what we were created to be. In this progressive sanctification process, when he says pruning, the word literally means to purify or to render clean. 
What Jesus is saying is that as we remain tied and connected to him as the, the, the vine, that as the branches, each one of us, the more, the more we remain connected to, to Christ, the better we become. The more clean we become, the more righteous we become, the more sanctified we become. The setting apart process. And this is a critical process for every one of us as followers of Jesus because I want to tell you that even if you look the part, if you're not connected to the power source, we are rendered utterly useless in our faith. Jesus says to his disciples, he prunes the branches that do not bear fruit. Why? Or that do bear fruit, excuse me. He prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will what? Produce even more so that they will be all the better. In our lives, what this means is that there are things that God is cutting off from us that may be painful in the moment, but he's doing it to prepare us to be even better for him, to be greater Christ followers of Jesus. That cleansing process, that purification process, when we look at deadheading, when we look at the things in our lives that are dead, that draw energy and attention and affection from us that are, are, should be reserved for God, Let's be honest. There are things in our lives, every one of us, me probably the greatest of all, that there are things in my life that I need to allow God to prune, that I need to allow God to cut out, that I need to allow God to deadhead that are literally not life-giving, but are pulling life away from where my attentions and affections should be. I could give you a list of things that I need to be better at. And some of them, some of them are really innocent. Let me give you an example for Andrew Anderson. One of the areas of my life where I am dead and where I allow the enemy to suck life out of me is this community. And you say, what? Didn't we just celebrate 130 volunteers, 500 hours of collective community service, over 30 houses and an entire park that was that was loved on yesterday? What do you mean this community sucks life out of you? Here's what I mean. I care so much about what you and people in this community think about me that it literally takes my thoughts away from Christ. It takes my emotions, places that are not Christ-like. It takes my attentions away from where they should be on who God has called me to be. And instead, I'm trying to conform to how I think this community wants me to look like. That's just a simple, subtle sin. But you know what it still is? A sin. And do you know when I find that I'm sinning the most? When I'm least connected to my source. When I'm least connected to Christ is when I'm most concerned about what you and everybody else in Blair thinks about me. When I am most connected to Christ, I could care less. I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less. When I'm connected to Christ... I'm focused on what he says I am and what he's calling me to be, not placating to all the people around me. And that's just one of the subtle sins of my life where I'm living in death that needs to be deadheaded and pruned so that I can become even more sanctified and more like Christ. There are others. This last week, church, another confession. I didn't just eat like a pig this last week. I ate like a herd of pigs. You've never done that? It started on Monday with a little cheat. 
By Wednesday, I was out with some staff members doing some video shooting, and we ended up at uh, a restaurant in Omaha, and I had a little bigger cheech. And by Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, I said, who cares? (laughs) And it's a simple sin. We're just talking about food. Everybody needs food. It's just a little sin. The problem is the Bible describes that as gluttony, and gluttony is a sin. Why? Because you are drawing your life and your nourishment from the things of this world and not the Father. Because you're not glorifying God with this temple that he's given you. I wasn't operating in optimum capacity this week. Why? Let me just tell you, just practically speaking, this sin created in me acid reflux. This sin created in me an upset stomach. This sin created in me an inability to sleep properly. This sin in me created the, the overeating sweats. Anybody know what I'm talking about? No, go to Fogo de Chow. You'll know what I'm talking about. Guys, these are just two examples in my life where I need to allow God to continue to cut back the things that are dying in me so that he can create in me even more life. My wife and I, we are three weeks in, three weeks into a brand new budget. Uh, Here you go. 18 years this month. I've been married November 16th. This year is 18 years. For the first time in 18 years, my wife and I have a budget. Get fired up. My wife told me yesterday, I said, honey, you going to Costco? She said, I'm going to Costco. I said, hey, while you're there, can you get this? She said, it's not in our budget. Good for her. <laughs> you're not a very good wingman. <laughs> Just a little more protein is all it was. <laughs> Guys, there are areas of my life that God is pruning so that I can become more pure, more, more like him. Not that, I, not, not that I'm ever going to be perfect. None of us is going to be perfect this side of heaven. That's why it's called progressive sanctification. We will experience entire sanctification when we know glorification in the body of Christ for all eternity. But this side of heaven, we deal with our sin every day. And we deal with the failures and the fallouts of our sin. So let me ask you, I just gave you three sins in my life that I struggle with this week. Where in your life do you need to allow the Holy Spirit to prune back the dead spaces that are taking the affections and the energy that you are called to commit to Christ and you're giving them to things that are dead and dying and of no value. He goes on to say, verse three, you have already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. What does that mean? Well, in verse three, he's telling them, guys, for three years you've been receiving this message of being set apart of being holy, of being made right. So you already have been pruned and I'm gonna continue the pruning process. Praise God. Verse four, he gives us the secret. He gives us the the, the capacity to remain in him because a lot of us are sitting here thinking, man, how in the world is it possible? Verse four tells us, remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Pastor, that is all well and good, but how do you remain in me? Take your finger, hold it there in John, flip to the right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then after Acts, you've got Romans. I want you to turn to Romans chapter, 12, Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 give us insight into how we can remain connected to Jesus as the source of life. 
Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, And so, Paul, writing to the church in Rome about how they live their lives as an attitude and as an aspect of worship. And Paul says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy. There it is again. Set apart. That holy set-apart sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. And in verse 2, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn how to know what God's will for you is, which is good and pleasing and perfect. The key for us remaining is Christ, in Christ is a daily renewal of our minds. When we set our minds on the things of Christ, it will influence our attitudes and our actions. Do you start your day off connected to Christ now, I know we've been connected to social media. I know we've been connected to the news outlets. I know we've been connected to all that's going on around us. I know we get connected to our coffee. Can I get an amen? I just happen to do both, Christ and coffee. Now, I know we get connected to the things that we've got to do in that morning, the, the schedule that is going to set the tone and the temperature for our day. But when we allow the things around us to inform us, it will influence us and lead us to a life that is not glorifying God. However, on the other hand, to remain connected to Christ, we get to, Romans 12, 2, we get to remain connected to Christ, allowing him to transform the way we think so that we, our lives, the choices that we make, the words that we use, the interactions that we have will be viewed as holy and pleasing unto God. Verse four, Jesus tells the disciples, remain in me and I will remain in you for a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Verse five, he's gonna repeat this because it's that important. He's going to repeat this because there's so many things that this could mean nationally, historically, religiously, agriculturally. He wants to take all the guesswork out. Now he, he goes from a, a, a plural idea to a singular individual. Yes, I am the vine. You are the branches. Matthew, you're one of the branches. James, you and your brother both, you are the branches. James, John, sons of thunder, you guys are the branches. Philip, Bartholomew, all of you, you are the branches. Let me take all the guesswork out of, of who I'm talking about here. This is a back to the future moment. Hello, McFly, hello. I'm talking about you. This is not a, a parable so that you get the understanding that there's something bigger going on. I want you to understand that I am talking about you and the importance of you staying connected to the vineyard, the vine as a branch. Because without staying connected, well, look what, I, look what he says, verse, verse 6. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. Why? How many of you have seen an amazing statue made from vine branches? How many of you have furniture made from vineyard branches? How many of you build your homes out of vineyard branches? No, why not? Because they are useless. Apart from the vine, they're weak, 
They are frail, they are small, and they are literally good for nothing except to be gathered together collectively into a bundle and tossed into a fire to use as accelerant, as kindling to fuel that fire. Now here, here's where I said I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't tell you the truth. This is not just an allegory about fires and fuel and kindling and all that. Did you know that throughout the New Testament, whenever we refer to Satan, death, and hell, it is literally tied to fire. Eternal fire that cannot be quenched. Not even a drop of water will touch your tongue. You will be scorched earth. You will be burnt up and continuing to burn. That is how this is described and defined in the New Testament. Jesus, Jesus even takes his disciples outside of the city and points to a big pile of garbage. It's a big junkyard that is literally lit on fire to clear out all the garbage in that community and it smells and, it, and it's horrendous. And Jesus says, let me explain to you what hell is like. It's like that burning pile of garbage. That's what hell is like. Jesus here, what he tells the disciples is, if you choose not to remain in me, this is what will happen. If you choose to willingly walk away from Christ as the source of your power and sustenance in life, Jesus tells the disciples, the men that he has done life and ministry with for three years, the men that he loves, that he called by name specifically and individually to follow him. He says, if you do not remain in me, you are a useless branch that withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. Verse 7, here's the counterpart to that. But, I love big buts in the Bible. But, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, what is his words? Well, his words are the cleansing, purifying peace that he's already talked about. If they remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted to you. Oh, I love that verse, don't you? Ask anything you want and it will be given to you. I love that verse, but I hate the way it's applied to our culture. Amen. Name it, claim it. If you asked for it and it didn't happen, it's because you didn't have enough faith. You got to add the uh at the end. <laughs> oh, if you, if you ask for it and it didn't happen, it's because you've got some secret sin in the camp. It's because you didn't give enough money. You, you didn't give enough time and the tithe. No, it's because the people telling you that don't know the word of God. They are not rooted in the source of power and life. They are abusing scripture and their position and platform to make money and to make names of themselves, not giving attribution to the Father, but taking it for themselves. So what does he mean then when he says, well, if you ask anything in my name, it's going to be given to you. So glad you asked. If I plug this vacuum cleaner in, if I take... This cord, and I plug it into the source of power, it doesn't become a bird just because I ask it to. It doesn't become a boat just because I want it to. It doesn't become a Ford F-150 because I need it to. It is a vacuum cleaner 
that is firing on all cylinders and doing what it was designed to do. And Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask anything and it will be given to you. Why? Because you are connected to Christ as a source of power in your life and you are going to be able to function the way he has called and created you to function. Which means as you are deadheading those things in your life that are drawing and sucking the life out of you and your faith, you are going to begin to put more attention and more affection into Christ and you're going to learn all the more what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what he cares about. And when you ask, the things you're asking for are going to be the things that he's already called you to. Ask me anything and it's going to be granted. Verse 8, when you, not if you, come on Christian, when you produce much fruit, you are my disciples. This brings great glory to my father. What is fruit? I love that you asked that question. Let me give you some examples of fruit. John 13, 35. Just turn a couple of pages in your Bible. Jesus says in John 13, 35, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples, the way that you love. Not the house you live in, not the car that you drive, not the cool Christian t-shirts you've got rocking, not even the words that come out of your mouth. I can say to you over and over again, this is a Ford F-150, this is a Ford F-150, this is a Ford F-150, midnight blue XLT. It is still a vacuum cleaner. And you know that because of the way that it is. Simple truth, but it's so true. We can say as Christians, I love Jesus and I love you. Really, then why do you walk around with so much bitterness and hatred in your heart? Why do you have ill will towards your neighbors? Why are you selfish with the time, the treasure, and the talents that God has given you to give to him, to give to the glory of God in the body of believers? Oh, we say we're followers of Jesus. We can even know this, gnosis. We can know the Bible, but if we don't live it out, it is useless. Jesus is literally telling the disciples here, the world will know that you are my disciples by the fruit, and that fruit, John 13, 35, the way you love. But he doesn't stop there. Hold your finger here. Turn to Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. Here's some fruit for you. And he even calls it fruit. Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. Paul tells the church in Galatia, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit. Now I want you next to the T, circle that. Not the word fruit, but circle the empty space next to the T. Do you know what's missing there? An S. Do you know why it's missing? Because it was never intended to be optional or you could pick and choose, but they are all one thing with nine attributes, nine characteristics. So what are those? Glad you asked, Christian. Here you go. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. 
The world will know that you are a follower of Jesus. And it's interesting that these, these, these fruit of the Spirit, one, one fruit, but, but, but characteristically they grow on top of each other because it starts with love. The greatest is love. And love produces joy. And without joy, you won't have peace. And without peace, you won't have patience. And if you don't have patience, you won't be kind. And if you're not kind, there's no goodness in your life. And if you don't have goodness, you won't be faithful to who God's called you to be. And if you're not faithful, you're not going to be gentle. And if you're not gentle, you're not self-controlled. These things, these things are not just a play on words. They are one collective fruit. So Jesus says, if you remain connected to Christ as the source of your power, you will bear fruit. Not, not, not might. Christian, not might. Not might. Verse 8, when you produce much fruit, you are my true, authentic, entire, complete, lacking nothing disciples. This brings great glory to who? My Father. My Father. Not you. Not how great you are. Not how generous you are. Not how good you are. But it's called appropriate attribution. God gets the glory. Verse 9. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Oh, I love that Jesus says this. He says, hey, look, this is what you have to do. Oh, by the way, I'm going to show you how to do it. Remain in my love just as I have obeyed and remained in my Father's love. Paul says it like this, follow me as I follow Christ. Jesus sets the stage and he is the example. Verse 11, I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Joy is not an emotion, but it is an act of obedience in our outlook. Verse 12, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. I want to give you four things to think about today as we close. Jesus takes all the guesswork out of us, out of our lives, when we're thinking about how to remain connected to him as the source of life, of power. The four things, let me give them to you like this. The first one is trust. If we're going to remain connected to Christ, we've got to first trust him. Right next to trust, write down John 14, 1. Trust me, he tells the disciples. Trust me. Trust me. If we're going to remain connected to Christ, we must first trust him. The second thing that we see is that we must obey him. Obey his commands. Obey the things he's calling us to, the things he calls us to say, the things that he calls us to do. We must first trust him. And the second thing is we must obey him. The third thing that we must do if we are to remain committed and connected to Christ is to love. Jesus tells the disciples and a lot of other onlookers that we are called to love the Lord our God, with all of our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength. And the second 
We are called to love others like we love ourselves. If we are called to commit to Christ and be connected to him, we must trust him, we must obey him, and we must love him. The third, or excuse me, the fourth and final is our outlook on these things. We are called to do so with joy. Not with bitterness, not with angst, not with anxiety or, or frustration, but we are called to passionately pursue Christ, the giver of life, our source of life, with joy in our hearts, not based on our circumstances, but our Christ. We can remain in Christ, the giver of life, the source of all power, if we will trust him, if we will obey him, if we will love him and love others, and if we will live our lives with joy. Without it, we are just looking the part we are playing the part. But the moment that we fully surrender, and I say that all the time. You say, Pastor, I, I hear that a lot. What do you mean fully surrender? I mean fully, entirely, completely in every area of your life. The way you think, the way you talk, the way you act, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your life giving to others, everything, every fiber of your being. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, the Bible says take every thought captive and make it wholly surrendered to the word of God. So if what you're thinking doesn't align with the word of God, stop thinking it. Allow him to prune you so that you can get rid of the deadheading that needs to take place so that you can turn your attention and your affections even more to the power and the source of life. Otherwise, you're just useless. You just look the part. You're just a heavy dummy. But when you fully surrender to the source of all life and you allow him to work in you, you become useful. You become beneficial. You become powerful. Not powerful according to human standards, but powerful in the kingdom of God to do the things that he's called you to do. So, friends, I'm going to leave this right here for you this morning to look at and to consider. What are you connected to? Where are you drawing your energy? Are you allowing the world to tell you where to spend your time and how to think and how to love? Or are you allowing Christ as you remain connected to him to give you power to live the life that he's called you to live.